It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. You're with us here on the Ideas Network. Women make up about 35% of all the agricultural producers in Wisconsin. That's 5% higher than the national average. That's according to the 2017 Census of Agriculture. A project here in Wisconsin has been bringing together multiple groups to work with women to promote conservation and land stewardship. They celebrate a number of Wisconsin women in conservation in a new publication out this month called Portraits of Love on the Land. You could join the conversation at 800-642-1234. Are we talking about you? Do you own, farm, or otherwise look after a patch of land in Wisconsin? What kind of practices do you have in place around conservation, big or small? Do you have questions about opportunities to promote different kinds of conservation on a small patch of land, big patch of land, any point in between? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. You can also email ideas at WPR.org. Esther Durayraj is Program Director for Wisconsin Women in Conservation. She's a research agronomist at the Michael Field Agricultural Institute. Esther, welcome to Central Time. Hey, Rob. Thanks for having me. And Laura Langworthy is Director of Special Projects for the Wisconsin Farmers Union and an owner of Blue Ox Farm in Wheeler. Lauren, thanks for joining us as well. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Esther, you've been uh, celebrating a year of programming this year, including with this new publication I mentioned. Can you tell us what the Wisconsin Women in Conservation Project is all about? So thanks for asking me that question. Wisconsin Women in Conservation is a program that's funded by the Natural Resources Conservation Service and led by the Michael Fields Agricultural Institute, which is based out of East Troy, Wisconsin. Um, we partner with other nonprofits, as you mentioned, in Wisconsin, namely Renewing the Countryside, Wisconsin Farmers Union and Marble Seed. Um, and we work with women landowners, farmers, um, in order to bring uh, education, outreach uh, about conservation practices. And not only that, we bring resources, um, trying to bring in the finance because women have a lot of questions on their mind. They are good stewards. Uh, as we know, women are nurturers by nature of their families, of their land. And so when they want to be better stewards of the land, they have this like a lot of questions about how to go about it and is that even financially possible? So um, we try to be the intermediary, bringing people who are connecting women with women. We also bring NRC's resources to them and see how they can make their dreams possible for the land. And Esther, looking at uh, portraits of love on the land, uh, conservation and stewardship means a lot of different things. Can you talk about uh, a little bit about the range of the projects that participants are doing on, on their own land? Oh, definitely. Yeah, this has been an enjoyable experience for us to bring out this book. So women are involved in um, grazing lands, in agriculture, in urban farming, wetland preservation, soil health, waterways. There's a lot of things that people, uh, women have been working on to be better stewards of the land. And so we, as we work with these women, uh, we want to uh, kind of bring out their voices uh, about what they have been doing. Uh, if you look at like many a times when we Google this, like conservation, not many of those women pop up. So we want to change that landscape because women are doing a lot of things and we want to bring those stories to their forefront. And so this book has brought about all that, so many of their stories and we thank those women who have shared their stories with us and to be open about it, to bring it to the public domain. 
Lauren, let's uh, visit Blue Ox Farm. Now, it sounds like uh, when you and your partner started this off, you really did have uh, conservation and stewardship in mind right at the outset. Can you talk a little bit about that that mindset, first of all? Absolutely. Well, um, when we started our farm, my, my husband, Caleb, it had really spent a lot of time aspiring to be a farmer and learning a lot about agriculture. And I was more of a nature kid who really enjoyed the outdoors and could picture myself living on a farm and all the wonderful things that could come with it, but certainly had a lot more to learn on the agricultural front. And since then, you know, our our big adventure has been trying to figure out how to merge both of those visions and try and make our farm both a place that produces food and supports our community, but also has wild space for, you know, the the badgers and the foxes and the the grassland birds that are endangered. Um, And so trying to balance kind of the the economic piece and the the personal livelihood, and then these larger goals for what our, our community and our landscape should look like. It's definitely a challenge, but uh, it's a fun challenge. And your farm, what you actually produce there has evolved over the years, I read in in the book here, Uh, and you've gone into grass-based animal production now, kind of as your main gig. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about how uh, you do that with conservation and stewardship in mind? Absolutely. Yeah. It uh, When we first started, we started with vegetable production and we kind of joke that it's a good way to turn sweat into money. Um, doesn't take a lot of infrastructure to get going in vegetables, but it does take an awful lot of work. <laughs> and um, as we were doing annual tillage and running a CSA and wholesale accounts and selling at farmers markets and into food co-ops, we were just feeling like we were spending a lot of time tilling soil and weeding. There was a lot of bare soil, even with the best production model that we were able to kind of muster. Um, And I know some people who are able to do it much better than we were, but um, we were looking at ourselves and thinking, why can't we get more perennials into this system? And why can't we get more things covered and have less bare soil, less tillage? And so that really led us on some some self-reflection and some business model reconsideration. And and that's how we kind of ended up in livestock, specifically rotational grazing. And so that rotational grazing allows us to really provide some good habitat, do soil building and uh, micro building, create a healthy animal and also um, kind of manage our own labor a little bit better. We're talking about Wisconsin women in conservation. Lauren Langworthy is with us, owner of Blue Ox Farm in Wheeler, and Esther Dureraj, program director for Wisconsin Women in Conservation, also with the Michael Fields Agricultural Institute. You could join in at 800-642-1234. Do you have a conservation or land stewardship project going on your in your backyard, in your uh, 40 acres, whatever land you're working with? Is there something you've been doing Uh, to maintain the soil, maintain animal and plant species and more, join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Esther, for that uh, new farmer, uh, maybe a woman getting into farming uh, for the first time or after growing up and then returning to a farm, what kind of help is out there for them here in Wisconsin? What kind of uh, community and mentorship can they reach out for? Okay, so the way we do our program is to have these for a learning circle events. So when they do come into one of these events, they sit with a sister community of women farmers and landowners who are sharing their stories about how they started and how they built their farm or the new beginning farmer has questions, they are able to help them. And we also bring in the FSA and the NRCS resource person. So they are able to right away tell them what are the 
resources that's available for them for purchase of land or for building infrastructure or for all these conservation practices that they can do. And so they go back with a kind of a knowledge of what's available, what's existing. We also have conservation coaches. Lauren is one of our coaches here um, who will be able to tell them what are the different things that like, as she just mentioned, how she thought about a business plan and moved her form along. These are the, these, these are the kind of stories that the women are exposed to and they learn from each other. So this is basically a peer-to-peer -peer model and we kind of uh, find motivation in each other and help the women grow in as a beginning farmer. And Lauren, I'm looking at a picture of you uh, educating uh, in the book right now. I think, why was it important for you not just to try to make uh, your farm operation a success, but to share uh, lessons you learned along the way with, with others? That's a great question. You know, as farmers, we are so busy. We have to have so many different types of skills from uh, business management to all the technical skills of livestock or, or plant management and health. And um, there's just so much that you need to learn. And it's really hard to start from zero in all of those arenas and become an expert in the time that we have. Um, and you really only have one opportunity a season for most uh, agricultural knowledge to be utilized and then you have to wait until the next year to try it again. So I think any time that we can support each other by sharing the knowledge we've learned, um, especially about things that can be really complex, like how to navigate some of these government program opportunities or how different ecosystems function, um, it really helps us all get further when we can share that knowledge into a general pot as opposed to hold on to it all ourselves. We're talking about the Wisconsin Women in Conservation Project and how it's helping uh, women landowners and other women stewards of land in Wisconsin. Our guests are Esther Durayraj, Program Director for Wisconsin Women in Conservation and Research Agronomist at the Michael Fields Agricultural Institute, and Lauren Langworthy, Director of Special Projects for the Wisconsin Farmers Union and an owner of Blue Ox Farm in Wheeler. A new publication out called Portraits of Love on the Land tells the story of, of a lot of these women getting involved in farmland conservation. You could join in at 800-642-1234. You can join the conversation. Are you doing some kind of conservation project on land you own or on? are you working maybe as a volunteer on public land? Love to hear your story. Or do you have questions for our guests about what it means to do land stewardship and conservation here in Wisconsin? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800 642 one, two, three, four. You can also email ideas at WPR.org. We'll continue the conversation coming up here on Central Time. This is Central Time here on the Ideas Network. I'm Rob Barrett. We're picking up our conversation about Wisconsin women in conservation. Esther Durayraj is program director for Wisconsin Women in Conservation and a research agronomist at the Michael Fields Agricultural Institute. And Lauren Langworthy is director of special projects for the Wisconsin Farmers Union and owner of Blue Ox Farm in Wheeler, featured in the new publication Portraits of Love on the Land. You can join in at 800-642-1234. If you're a farmer yourself on a large or small scale, what kinds of conservation things do you do? What kind of stewardship do you do for your soil and land? Uh, and wherever you are, whatever you do, do you try to plant maybe native species to uh, help butterflies and other animal and insect species? Love to hear from you at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. 
Esther, as I mentioned uh, earlier, you know, this isn't one size fits all. A lot of different people do different conservation uh, projects. How how could people figure out, okay, this is the land I've got. This is the uh, agriculture maybe I'm doing. What kind of conservation methods might be right for me? So when the women or landowners or farmers come to one of our events and express interest in having a conservation plan, um, then we right away work with them. We just have something called an intake form where we get the information about their land, their practices that they're adopting as of now, and what they want to see on their land. Um, sometimes women straight away want to go in for CAUSHA programs, which is the EQ through NRCS, and then we connect them to the NRCS and NRCS professionals walk their land and tell them what is possible for them. And sometimes men, women are not ready to go there. They just want to know what can they do what are the possibilities? What are the limitations? And in that case, then we have the funding to have a technical service provider walk their land. We we make those arrangements. We find the people to walk the land, give them, talk with them, talk about the, the dreams that they have for the land. Like they may have certain dreams that can be possible or not. So this person who walks their land is able to tell them who's a conservation professional, who's able to tell them what works, what may not, what's the other options that they have. And then at the end of it, they would get a conservation plan document, which they can have it, think about it, and then go for the next step as soon as possible or as late as possible. It depends on them. But they at least have a knowledge of what can be done on their land. And Lauren, uh, you give a top conservation tip in the uh, Portraits of Love on the Land book. Uh, You start uh, saying... Start small. Make the case uh, for being willing to to start small, even if it doesn't seem like it's going to be a big difference maker. Yeah, well, this is is kind of a joke to those people who know me, but um, I'm not notorious for starting small or or keeping <laughs> things small. But um, it's it's actually really helpful, especially when you're looking at significant changes to a farming operation to change, you know, a couple of smaller things and see if you like the direction it's going and give it some time to to take hold because conservation really isn't something that happens overnight. And uh, a small change could take years, maybe even to really reflect on the land. And so being gentle and patient with yourself and not feeling like you have to do it all at once or you have to do uh, really, really big things when you're not entirely certain. It can actually help the whole process go a lot more smoothly to make it more manageable and um, more achievable. Esther, I wanted to po- uh, highlight one project in particular. Now, we might think of uh, agricultural stewardship and conservation as something that happens in rural Wisconsin, which it does. You feature, though, a project project in Milwaukee. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that one? Um, yeah, we have a we have an urban ag network in Milwaukee as well because you know actually for rural and urban settings the agriculture is totally different sense. Uh, many of the urban gar- people are gardeners, community gardeners, or backyard gardeners, and we didn't want them to be let out off the loop. So we have them as well uh, as a part of our group. We meet separately in Milwaukee. Um, we talk with them. Is there any pollinator planting that they would like to have? Is there, um, uh, you know, um, something with the vegetable gardens that they're raising? How can we help them? How can we have their land covered during winters, maybe a cover crop? So these are the options that we talk to them. Uh, and we also brought out a rainfall simulator a, a couple of months ago for them to see, like, realistically what happens when a rainfall event happens on their land. And, you know, uh, we bring such kind of education, which opens the eyes for them to adopt various conservation measures, even if it's in a smaller scale. 
And Lauren, can you talk a little more? You, you, we've talked about why you got into wanting to share uh, education about conservation. On a practical level, what does it mean to be a conservation coach? Well, that's uh, another great question. Um, I think it really depends on the person who's seeking information. Um, so our role is not as formal as, you know, when you go into the NRCS office or the, the FSA offices or anything like that. Um, no government centers here. We're just uh, farmers talking to other farmers about what might work and what might not. And so I'm able to share with people um, when I kind of hear what kinds of questions they have and what kind of hopes and dreams they have, I can say, oh, I happen to know about this program that could maybe provide some cost share toward that bigger goal you have. Or I know about an organization that's doing some work in that arena that could help you find some more resources. Uh, there are networks of other men and women that to get connected with. And, and so it's really trying to hear what a person is looking for and help them along their pathway to um, just not have to do it alone and not have to find everything from scratch. Talking to Lauren Langworthy and Esther Dureiraj about the Wisconsin Women in Conservation Project and the new book from that project, Portraits of Love on the Land, featuring women doing all different kinds of stewardship and conservation. Esther, can you talk a little more about uh, why focusing on women in particular? You were starting to touch on that earlier. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the particular needs of women in conservation and stewardship? Okay. Yeah, that's a great question. Um so the way we look at it, women are nurturers. We see that we take care of the family, we take care of relationships, we take care of the land. We are mostly the glue in every single thing that happens around us. And we see that uh, women have great dreams for their land, but there are a lot of questions in the mind, like, is this workable? Is this financially feasible? And there are times that we find it difficult to ask those questions. Uh, and so when we bring a group of women together, we have seen this great bonding that happens within a period of an hour because we sit in a learning circle. We start out with introductions, which talk about what is the, uh, what, what do you look forward to your land and what have you done on your land? We have different set of questions at different events. And so people start talking about the land and there are, we have like a seasoned landowner. We have beginning farmers who people were seeking the land who all are, seeking for inspiration and motivation, and they, we learn from each other. Uh, it's a sense of togetherness, the sense of working together. So um, the, the way we feel is that, imagine if we can just bring about change in these number, 37% of women are producers now. And if we can bring about a change uh, in how they steward the land in terms of conserving natural resources or bringing a big impact on the landscape, not only helps them, and it's and the future generations and the kids are watching their moms and that's a big change and that's what is our passion we our team drives on that passion we really want to bring about this uh, love for the land and that's one of the book that's the title of the book as well how we we really want women who are already loving the land and we want to give them the opportunities to take better care of that Got an email from Patty in Lake Mills who writes, I farm a thousand acres with our dairy farm. We have a nutrient management plan for our land. We soil sample the land after every crop to see what nutrients the land needs. Also, we plant cover crops like triticale and winter wheat to keep soil in place. And we rotate between corn, alfalfa, and soybeans. Uh, as a, a fellow livestock farmer, uh, Lauren, can you talk a little bit about some of the other conservation options open for people uh, raising animals? 
Yeah, as with many conservation opportunities, it, it depends so much what your goals are mm -hmm. and what your current infrastructure is. Um, and so, you know, on my farm, we're doing rotational grazing, which means moving animals from paddock to paddock regularly. Um, in our situation, it's pretty much every day they move to a new paddock. And that allows us to capture that manure and urea and put it back into the soil and grow more grass. Um, but not everybody is set up to do that. Not everybody has either the, the land base to do it or the labor to do it. Um, and so there are a lot of different ways that people can improve the conservation around their farm. Anything from waterways to um, your, your caller mentioned uh, planting cover crops mm -hmm. to be able to capture some of that manure. There are just so many things. And, and depending on where you're starting from and where you're hoping to go, there are just uh, so many opportunities for people. Esther, in just our last minute or so, I understand the project has gotten an extension now for another couple of years. Uh, what are your hopes to accomplish over the next year or so? Oh, we are moving into new territories. We've been working in 18 tri-counties, in, uh, in 18 counties, like six tri-county clusters over the last year. We're looking into moving into 12 more uh, counties this year and the next. And so we really want more women to join us. At present, we almost have like last year alone, we reached out. Uh, to about 1,000 women landowners who came to our programs and benefited from it. And we're looking to increase those numbers. We're looking to be of value to women landowners. And so I can just call out the uh, the names of the counties that we're going into next year, Trumpelo, La Crosse, Monroe, Dane, Rock, Jefferson, Green Lake, Columbia, Sauk, Eau Claire, Chippewa, and Clark. If you're a woman landowner, please connect with Wisconsin Women in Conservation at www www.wiwic.org. We'll get that up at wpr.org slash central time as well. And we'll leave it there. Esther, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much, Rob, for having me. And Lauren, thanks for sharing your work with us. Absolutely. Thank you. Esther Dureyraj is Program Director for Wisconsin Women in Conservation and a Research Agronomist at the Michael Fields Agricultural Institute. And Lauren Langworthy is Director of Special Projects for the Wisconsin Farmers Union and an owner of Blue Ox Farm in Wheeler. We've talked to them today about the Wisconsin Women in Conservation Project, how it's been helping educate and provide resources to women farmers and other land stewards around the state. I'm Rob Ferret. You're listening to Central Time here on the Ideas Network. Central Time, I'm Rob Ferret. Classes will end at UW-Milwaukee in Washington County and UW-Oshkosh-Fond UW du Lac. And another two-year UW system campus, UW-Platteville at Richland, is officially closing after not having any students since May. UW system's two-year campuses aren't the only ones experiencing problems. Ten out of the system's 13 colleges have projected a budget shortfall in the coming year. UW-Oshkosh is reducing staff with buyouts and layoffs. Republican lawmakers have blocked a pay raise for over 30,000 UW system employees. Our next guest has been following the news from across Wisconsin's public university system, and you can join in at 800-642-1234. Are you a student at or do you work at one of UW system's two-year colleges? Have you noticed declining enrollment or other problems in recent years? Are you involved in one of the campuses that's flat out closing? What is your reaction to that? You're at UW Oshkosh, seeing these big cuts there. Love to hear from you as well. Join in with uh, your thoughts on the future of 
public universities in Wisconsin at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Rich Kramer is a reporter at WPR who covers higher education. Rich, welcome back to Central Time. Hey, Rob, good to be back. A lot going on in your higher education beat right now, Rich. Let's start with the two-year schools. Uh, One, we kind of already knew, I think, was on the way out. Now two more. Can you tell us a little bit about the latest announcement? Yeah, it it was a bit of a surprise this week, although um, a lot of people in the counties with these two-year campuses um, have kind of been expecting similar actions from the UW system um, comparable to what happened in, in UW-Richland late last year. Um, so yeah, as you mentioned during the uh, the lead-in here, UW-Milwaukee's Washington County campus, uh, last fall it had 332 students. Um, I mean, that's down 67% from 2012. And UW-Oshkosh um, had 258 students last fall. And that's down about 63% from 2012. And that's really the same story for for most, almost all of the uh, the two-year, what are now called the branch campuses. There are 13 of them, or there were 13 of them. And then there's 13 universities. And the branch campuses used to be known as the University of Wisconsin uh, colleges. Mm-hmm. And they were meant as a stepping stone for uh, students who might not be able to get into a, a four-year university, you know, study closer to home, et cetera, and then be able to make that that leap. What does this mean, or do we know what this means uh, for someone who's currently enrolled at one of these uh, two-year satellite campuses? So the the impacted campuses, the, the message from the University of Wisconsin System President Jay Rothman is that um, they'll be offered enrollment at at other campuses. Essentially, generally, I think like when it happened in at UW of Richland or UW Platteville at Richland, students were offered the option of enrolling at uh, UW Platteville's other branch campus, which is nearby about an hour away, or they could enroll at the Platteville main campus or really enroll wherever they like within. They're going to, I mean, they're going to finish out this semester um, at Washington County and Fond du Lac so that means at the end of May, so uh, essentially, they'll have to make a decision of where they're going to go. Now, there's some practical outcomes that you've written about, Rich, with that uw Platteville at Richland campus, for example. Now, we know they didn't have students. There was some talk of online. Now it's officially closing. Uh, there's buildings. There's infrastructure there. And there is an arrangement between the UW system and Richland County that, uh, well, there's some question marks now about what happens next. Talk about that a little. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that goes for every single one of these branch campuses. That's they represent a really unique relationship between state government and local government. So the the yeah, the the buildings and the property at UW Richland, Washington County, Fond du Lac, and you know, the eleven others around the state, they're owned by the county. The county pays for maintenance. Um and, and, you know, construction, major construction. So the, the counties have put a lot of money into those facilities. And then in turn, you know, they've got these 75-year lease agreements, for lack of a better term, with the UW system. The UW system offers, you know, their end of the deal is we're going to provide the instruction, the students. We're going to put the, you know, the human part in there. So it gets into a bit of a game of um, language. I don't know. 
with regard to Richland, it's a prime example because President Rothman announced in right right before Thanksgiving of last year that they're going to end in-person degree-bearing classes. What that meant was that this May, at the end of this uh, semester, the spring semester, it was it. I mean, there was not really anyone on campus, but the UW system was saying, well, we're maintaining a presence. What that does is it holds up their end of the deal um, as negotiations ongoing negotiations continue between the UW system and the county. Some of the county board uh, members in Richland County want money. They say that they've put a lot of money into these campuses. They say that, um, you know, now they're left with lost economic opportunity because those students, the few that they had used to bring in, you know, money. They used to spend money there and they had to live nearby and et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, some county board members have put a price tag of up to 50 some million dollars, which might not be the end number. Um, others have said lower numbers like, you know, one and a half million, but either way, this is a situation that's going to have to be dealt with somehow, because if we go way back to like the 1990s, there was a UW campus in Medford. Uh, and that was the first one of these two-year colleges to close. And there was a deal where the legislature had to agree to, to, to reimburse the County. I, I forget the details, but that's where the sticking point is now, um, as as we you know the, the the terminology from ending in-person classes to closing so i'm not sure what it means but um it took the people in richland county by surprise that that the campus is officially closing some people were trying to keep it uh for higher education or some sort of educational purpose but now it doesn't look like that's going to happen Talking to Rich Kramer, reporter for WPR, who covers higher education, looking at a lot of news from across uh, the UW system, the universities of Wisconsin, two-year campuses, a couple of them closing, big cuts at UW Oshkosh. You could join in at 800-642-1234 if you've been personally affected by these changes. Are there changes you'd like to see uh, come to the UW system one way or another. Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. This, of course, all has an impact on the people who work at these campuses. Rich, here's a listen to uh, UW System President Jay Rothman talking about that. Whether it's layoffs and furloughs, uh, changes at our branch campuses, or uncertainty over their wages, I recognize that it is an extraordinarily difficult time for our employees. Can you talk, Rich, uh, about the impact on We'll get to UW Oshkosh in a moment, but before these two-year campuses, what do we know what all this, uh, what all these changes mean for the people who have worked there? Not much. Um, with Again, I keep going back to Richland, but uh, in that situation, there were offers, um, at least a discussion of offers to have some of those staff members go to another branch campus or go to the main campus in Platteville. I'm not sure. I think um, I know that one woman that was an instructor at the Richland campus just opted for retirement, um, but they're they're going to have to make decisions as well. I mean, it um, the universities, I, I, you know, I, I really don't know. They, they're not in a position to be hiring a bunch of people right now. Um, most of them have these budget deficits that we've talked about a little bit. So it's unclear. I mean, they might just end up having to look for other careers. Let's go to our callers now. Chris is with us in Appleton. Chris, hi. Hi, thank you. Um, 
as the uh, technical colleges in Wisconsin have been offering associate's degrees that allow students to go to the four-year college afterward for the past decade or so, have their enrollments increased in, during that time? Chris, thanks for the call. I'm looking at numbers from uh, 2021 to 22 that saw an increase in that time span, Rich, for the overall technical college system. Uh, what do we know about uh, trends in technical colleges? Is there a thought uh, or is anybody expressing the idea that, hey, maybe people are going there instead of these two-year campuses? Well, that's a great question. Um, the enrollment has been declining at the, the two-year technical colleges, or I, I should say the technical colleges. They offer a wide variety of things, mm -hmm. uh, including associate's degrees. There was a big expansion of that just last year, I want to say, which was uh, seen by some in the UW as a real threat to these, these UW colleges. But um, their enrollment has also been kind of declining over the years, and COVID hit them very hard, very hard. I mean, nationwide, we saw people that were going to these community colleges and technical colleges, these two-year programs. Generally, you see people uh, lower income, you know, working adults, parents, working parents. Um, they just didn't have the capacity to go to college when all the stuff hit the fan uh, because of the COVID pandemic. So... But they, like you mentioned, Rob, they are bouncing back a little bit. And the technical colleges also do a great job of offering um, high school students enrollment. So, so high school students can get their degrees before they're even out of college. UW is doing some of that, um, but the tech colleges are way ahead. And also what the tech colleges are looking at is they're trying to, to find new ways of upskilling people. So one thing they some of these operations do is They'll go to an employer and they'll offer classes for employees while they're at work to to work towards certification so they can kind of level up in their jobs. Um, so the tech colleges are really nimble at, at um, finding different ways to get people education and, and therefore get some some income. But, you know, it's not easy for them either. I mean, generally speaking high school graduates in Wisconsin are just choosing not to go to high uh, uh, college because we've got a lot of employers that are are paying big bucks right now or great starting wages. And you've also got some of these employers that offer, you know, um, tuition. If you want to go to a tech college and level up and get that certification or degree or whatever. So the face of higher education is just changing so quickly. And the pandemic just put it, put the foot on the gas. We're talking to Rich Kramer, WPR reporter who covers higher education, looking at the closure of three UW system, two-year campuses, other financial issues and challenges with the state university system. You could join in at 800-642-1234 with your thoughts, your questions, maybe your experiences, especially if you're personally affected by some of these changes, 800 642 one, two, three, four is the number. We'll pick up the conversation coming up on Central Time. It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. We're picking up our talk with WPR higher education reporter Rich Kramer about the closure of three W system, two year campuses, other financial issues facing the University of Wisconsin system. Back to your calls at 800-642-1234. Rick is with us in Wisconsin Dells. Rick, hi. Hi, how are you doing? Good. What do you want to tell us about? Uh, well, we need to we need to uh, we need to really discuss this. Um, I'm a uh, I was a former athletic director and assistant uh, professor at UW Baraboo. Um, our UW colleges, the two year campuses, are absolutely amazing. 
the work that's done there, the academic rigor. Um, I've worked in a private four-year college, and it didn't even compare um, what juniors and seniors were doing compared to what we had our freshmen and sophomores doing at UW-Baraboo. Um, and the reality is this all came, this all started back with Act 10 and Scott Walker. Um, and the basics were, you know, that what happened was the campuses were basically shut down on some of their money and funding. They were told that we're not going to have a dean at each um, of the 13 UW colleges anymore. Um, so you didn't have a name, a face, a leader of each campus. They got rid of some of the associate deans that were in charge of recruiting, going out to our all of our local high schools and letting them know that, hey, you can come to our campus and get the same education um, at, a, at a local price. And that's the reality of it. The, the other part of it related to what was talked about with the two-year campuses, uh, um, technical colleges, is most people don't realize the funding is completely different in that the technical colleges are in on our property taxes. Um, every property in every county that has a satellite or a core technical ca campus, you are paying property taxes for that. You are not for the UW colleges. Rick, thanks a lot for the call. Rich, Rick pointing toward, uh, he says, uh, uh, disinvestment two, in effect. Two fantastic points, yeah. Um, so, I mean, aside from the UW system, like this goes back, Act 10 also in 2015, 2013, there was a tuition freeze uh, for residential students. That was a big blow for income with regard to the UW, all UW schools. Then there was regionalization of the, um, uh, the, which Rick was talking about with regard to the two-year campuses. So a lot of proponents of the two-year campuses said they lost their local identity and, and they were kind of an afterthought. And because of that, it just, you know, it started going downhill. And then in 2017, 2018, there was restructuring with of the UW system. And that was meant to, you know, these, these two-year campuses were merged officially with uh, four-year universities. But if you look at the enrollment, um, the enrollment declines, which were happening anyway uh, across the board for higher education, because, you know, after the, the great recession, a lot of people went to, you know, during the great recession, a lot of people went back to college. Well, it started declining because we had peaks of enrollment. Then after the restructuring in 2018, that enrollment, especially at the branch campuses, really fell at a faster rate. You know, I don't know exactly why that happened, but some have said, well, that's obvious because of the gutting of the two-year campuses. Uh, but then uh, I forget the other point that he, he made. Oh, the property taxes. Mm -hmm. Yes, the tech colleges do have a really big advantage and they've got sustainable funding through the property taxes. But just this, this uh, legislative session this year, assembly speaker, Robin Voss um, introduced a, there was a, a bill that was changed and the amendment would have basically said that tech colleges can no longer use property taxes to fund ge general operations. That bill was withdrawn. It wasn't acted on. But I've been told by people, various people, that that was essentially a warning because there's some lawmakers that are upset with the property taxes going up consistently at places like the tech colleges in Milwaukee and Madison. So essentially, lawmakers sent a message that you better knock it off with these increases. So 
we could see that change as well uh, in the future. It all depends. There's a lot, a lot going on. Rick, thanks for that call. Talking to Rich Kramer, who covers, among other things, higher education here at WPR, looking at some big news in the UW system. Rich, uh, before we run out of time, I want to look at a couple of the other pieces of news going on out there. UW Oshkosh, one of the four-year campuses, uh, substantial staffing cuts, uh, layoffs, uh, part of it, buyouts, and the other. What's going on there? Yeah, that's because of an $18 million deficit that goes back to the tuition freeze. It goes back to the funding cuts. And then also this year, there was a $32 million cut, essentially a cut to the UW system budget uh, requested or basically called for by Voss and and successfully included in the state budget. Um, So that all kind of adds up, but also enrollment is declining at the same time. At UW Oshkosh, what happened is they had a structural deficit, just like 10 of the other 13 four-year universities. But the tuition reserves, which is like the biggest cushion, that the the pot of money that they can kind of freely use to move around however they need to, they were set to run out of that. So they uh, the chancellor said, we don't have any choice. We have to cut. Those, uh, like you mentioned, it was about 216 staff positions. No faculty members were cut, but that included 12 administrators, that's getting them some savings, um, but we're likely to see similar situations. We've already seen furlough announcements at other schools like Platteville, um, and I forget maybe Parkside as well. But, but it's all because the 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 deficits are growing or are staying the same. State support isn't uh, increasing, and the the cushion, the reserves that they uh, have had which is a whole other story, are just shrinking. And without reserves, these campuses don't have any other choice. And that reserve whole other story, it wasn't that long ago uh, that campuses were criticized for having reserves that were too big, at least according to some leading uh, Republican lawmakers. Yeah, that happened in 2013. There was a a fiscal bureau, uh, legislative fiscal bureau note that mentioned a billion dollars. Well, 414, something like that, million dollars in tuition reserves and lawmakers were outraged by that. That's why we got the uh, tuition freeze. The lawmakers essentially said you have to spend down your reserves in order to keep your balance uh, books balanced. And the reserves went down, 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 and they're they're still in that situation right now. And then finally, uh, some of the Republicans earlier this week blocked uh, scheduled pay raises for UW system employees, uh, 34,000 people. Disclaimer, uh, WPR uh, is via UW-Madison. We are part of that story. Uh, What is going on there, Rich? Well, the latest on that is um, the the Joint Committee on Employee Relations. The the, the raises were approved 4% this year, 2% next year. They were approved by state lawmakers in the budget. But there's this committee that is co-chaired by Assembly Speaker Robin Voss that has to give final approval before they can go into effect. And he said he was going to withhold that as part of his pressure campaign against the UW system to try to get them to dismantle diversity, equity, and inclusion programs at all the campuses. He originally wanted to cut almost, I forget what it was, like over 100 positions. Um, And that's what the $32 million cut was about, too. Voss says that DEI is indoctrination. Uh, he's called it the 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 new woke religion of the left. So um, Voss has made an offer to the UW saying we'll let these raises go through, but you have to give the legislature final say over any new p- positions you want to create. And the UW, I guess, did not want to do that. Voss says that just shows that they would rather 
not, you know, they'd rather not see employees get raises than give legislature control. So it's, it's politics. It's a big, big political uh, situation and a lot of people impacted. Rich, uh, briefly, that's a lot we've talked about already. What are you watching for next in higher education stories? Oh man, I don't know. The, uh, (laughs) that's a great question, Rob. Uh, Honestly, I think me and a lot of other people are wondering whether other two-year campuses will kind of suffer the same fate. I'm really watching to see what happens with this uh, this lease between the UW system and Richland County, which of which I think there's 15 years left on it. So if the if the UW system is saying we're closing the campus, it kind of feels like that means that they're stepping away from the lease, but I wouldn't I have no idea what happens with regard to that. Now I'll be trying to find that out. Rich, thanks a lot for sharing your reporting with us. Thank you. That's Rich Kramer, reporter at WPR who covers higher education. He talked to us about financial issues facing the UW system and the politics behind some of those issues. Join Wisconsin Public Radio tonight for live special coverage from the Oval Office. It starts at 7 o'clock. President Biden plans to speak about the U.S. response to war around the world, both in the Middle East between Hamas and Israel and between Russia and Ukraine. Tune in for live special coverage from NPR. That's tonight at 7 here on WPR and WPR.org. A couple days back, we asked you to share your favorite TV shows to re-watch or older shows that you discovered maybe even years after they were actually on the air. A lot of you called, and we heard for even more of you on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Here are a bunch of your responses. Travis says Seinfeld. Dave goes with anything Star Trek. Jimmy says definitely Corner Gas, Dobie Gillis, and Red Dwarf. A little more science fiction there. Linda says MI5, a great BBC spy series. Lynn writes, friends, love the characters and stories, watched it then and now over and over. Brandy says, so many. The first one that comes to mind is The Office. Sadie picks Frasier and Seinfeld. Michael says, every Star Trek except Discovery. Diana says, Bones and Monk. David, oh, this is a good one for radio fans. WKRP in Cincinnati, along with MASH, Doctor Who, and The Big Bang Theory. So much TV, so little time. This is Central Time.